Welcome to the podcast for Real Church Coweta. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sharpsburg. You can also check us out online at realchurchcoweta.com or jump on Facebook at Real Church Coweta. We hope you enjoy this week's message. All right, you guys can be seated. Everybody doing good today? Yeah, everybody doing good? Good. Good. So glad you guys are here. Glad to uh, be here as well. Well, we're in John chapter 8. If you want to get your Bibles and go ahead and turn to John chapter 8, that would be fantastic. Uh, John chapter 8 is where we are located today. We're going through a, a series called Believe. And the reason we're going through a series called Believe is, is because in, in uh, the book of John, one of the things, one of the main things that John is trying to say is this. He's saying, listen, if you believe, then you will live. If you believe, then you will live and not just live uh, for for eternity, but also live today. And that means that you would have what John 10.10 would call an abundant life, an overflowing life. He says that the enemy comes to uh, still kill and destroy, but Jesus came so that we could have an overflowing or an abundant life. And so we're going through a series called Believe. I want to give you a little bit of background before we start. We do this almost every week. The book is separated into two parts. We're already to John chapter 8, and as you've already been able to tell, John chapter, chapters 1 through 12 is the book of signs. That's all the things that Jesus uh, has done. We've seen him walk on water, water to wine. We've seen various miracles. He's fed 5,000. We've seen these various miracles. Um, and so today um, we are going to jump back into uh, a very interesting, probably the most interesting, in my opinion, one of the most interesting passages in John and you'll find out why in a second. But John 13 through 21 is the book of glory. That means it's a process of him giving his life over so that we may have eternal life. He's defeating death. And so I say this every week, but the main goal here of John chapter, uh, John, John, the book of John is John chapter 20, verse 31. If we we'll want to read that. It says, but these are written. So this is the reason the book is written. That these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And so let's take a look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. All right, 1 through 11. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Uh, They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses said to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, and so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the first one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. 
There's some interesting things I want you to know about this text. Now, I've told you this before, but I want to remind you of this because you may not actually know this or remember this. And a lot of us read the scriptures as if, uh, especially the gospels, as if they are an historical account. And they are somewhat of an historical account. But just remember this, that in most of the gospels, uh, especially John, the sequence of events are not are not they're they're not necessarily in sequential order and so what you're you're reading here for instance um, Jesus returned to the uh, uh, to the Mount of Olives but early the next morning he was back again in the temple so G, this this story actually did not occur directly after what occurred that we talked about about the living water it actually was put in there for a reason and for emphasis. The story is true, but it did not occur in a sequential order. And that's something you need to remember. John is writing and he wanted to make sure that the maximum impact is felt. Something else I want you to know as well. This story was not part of the original book of John. Verses 53 of chapter 7 all the way through verse 11 of chapter 8 was not in the original Manuscripts. If you go all the way back in your Bible, some Bibles don't even have it in there. But my Bible says the most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7, 53, verses 8 through 11, uh, verses, um, and John 53 uh, through 8, 11. That's what it says. So, where did the story come from? And why are they just throwing stories in? And is it true or is it not? Well, it probably came around the second, uh, the second century A.D. So it came around the second century A.D. And the reason we think it came during that time, and I say we like I'm some kind of scholar, they, and I read, uh, I know, right, we think that. No, listen, they literally think that it came during that time because around that time, adultery had been cast as the sin that was unforgivable. I want you to, I want you to hear that. So the scribes that would copy down the text added this very well-known story in this perfect spot right here in the middle of John chapter 8. Most believe that this event happened during Passion Week. As a matter of fact, if we look at Luke chapter 21, and it'll be behind me back here. If we look, look at Luke chapter 21, we're going to see, starting in verse 22 and 24, it says, um, let me see here, Luke 22, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, verses 21 and through 24. It says, um, it, it says, for it has been determined that the Son of Man must die, but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other, which one of them uh, would do such a thing? They even began to argue among themselves. There's a strong connection here, okay? I want you to see this. There's a strong connection that, that there is a strong connection that Jesus, he would, here's what he would do. He would go out in the last week of the Passion. He would go out and then he would come back in. And he would go out and then he would come back in. And then he would go out and he would come back in. And so what Jesus, what, what they believe, um, they believe that this event, because he would come into the temple and teach and then go back out. We saw, and in a couple of weeks we'll celebrate Palm Sunday, the first time he came in is when the palms were falling. And then he came out. 
And then he would go back in. So what the scholars believe is, is that this is going to be a time where he actually has come back in. He has gone out for the night and he has come back in. And he comes back into the temple and he is teaching the people during the Passion Week. And because they wanted to trap him, because the people wanted to trap him, they said, I know what we're going to do. Boom, we've got this woman caught in adultery. Let's take her to Jesus and see what he has to say. Let's take her to see what he has to say. Now you may think, well, why would they do that? Well, here's why they would do that. If he said, if he was too lenient on the woman, the thought was if he was too lenient on the woman, then then he would show that he does not know the law, that he's not a real teacher. He would not know the law. But if he was too harsh on the woman, it would show that he tried to take the power that only the Romans would have. And so, so if he was too lenient, then the Pharisees and the people that were against him could say, see, he doesn't even know the law. Stop following him. But if he was too harsh, they would report back to the Romans and the Romans would then get involved and they would then do what the Pharisees wanted them to do. So what in the world's going on here? What's going on? Deuteronomy 22 verses 23 through 24, it says, If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge uh, Israel of such evil. All right. Suppose a man meets a young woman, a virgin who is engaged to be married, and he has sexual intercourse with her. If this happens within a town, you must take both of them to the gates of that town and stone them to death. The woman is guilty because she did not scream for help. The man must die because he violated another man's wife. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. So, that explains the law. Also, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if we could bring that up. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. So, when you would bring judgment and and you you would bring someone before this court of religious people, the details were very important because... Literally, the man and the woman's life is at stake. They're at stake. So, and I'm talking about very important. And so they would literally ask specific questions about what occurred. I mean, they would be so specific as in, okay, and and I kid you not, what color was the blanket? They would ask questions like that. Because they wanted to make sure that, and it was very, it was, honestly, it was very rare for, for people to be stoned in this way. Because they wanted specific evidence, 100%, no questions asked. That's exactly the, the, the reason why they were so specific. Because they didn't want the people to stone someone that wasn't truly guilty. But here's the question I have. Where's the man? Where's the man at? That's the issue. Where's the man in the scenario? Because the law said, as we read it before, that both parties were supposed to be stoned. But where's the man? Let me tell you what's going on here. 
There's a lot more behind this story than meets the eye, and that is so true in most of the book of John. Many scholars believe this is exactly what's going on. So, back in the day, if a husband got tired of his wife, back in the day, if a husband got tired of his wife, he would set the wife up to be caught in the act of adultery so that he would not have to give up land and property and those things that he had received from the wife's family. Have you ever, is there ever been a more perfect time in the scripture that Keith Morrison from Dateline didn't need to be here? I mean, I I have literally watched that episode 40 times on Dateline. Seriously. They didn't know what was in the tea. It was arsenic. Haven't you? They would set, they would set, the husband would set the wife up. And here's what would occur. The husband would set the wife up and the wife would fall prey to it. And the husband would tell the religious leaders that this is what's occurring at this time. And the religious leaders would show up. And when they would show up, they would find the wife in the middle of adultery. And thus, the husband then has gotten rid of the wife. There's some men writing some things down. You're wrong. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. How do we know this? Well, John 8, 4 says this. John 8, 4, we know. John 8, 4 says, teacher... Um, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Uh, listen, they didn't have uh, cell phone cameras, and they didn't have, uh, you know, Wi-Fi, uh, and they didn't have uh, cameras, and they didn't have all that kind of stuff. Uh, it'd be pretty difficult to catch somebody in the act of adultery, you know, especially if they were trying to sneak around a little bit. I mean, yeah, once in a blue moon, I'm sure, but I'm pretty confident that they would hide it pretty well. You know, they would hide it pretty doggone well. I mean, there were no, they they didn't say, look, she posted it on YouTube or, I mean, there was none of that. There was none of that. And so chances are there's a strong possibility that, and listen, here's what's crazy about it. You know, the, the, uh, the husband doing this, oftentimes it would, it would follow through and the trick would actually work. Um, because, because he, he actually would get what he was searching for. And while it was not legally speaking in the, in the Mosaic law, it was not legally speaking wrong. It was for sure morally wrong and ethically wrong. And it was very, very unjust. And as you, if you know anything about scripture, you know, anything about Jesus, Jesus was very just, he was very just. So that's probably what's going on here. And so the scriptures, the, the scriptures have said clearly, this is what needs to occur. I asked the question, where is the man? Because the man should be there as well. But they've only brought the woman. And they brought the woman in front of Jesus to trick Jesus. And so what can we learn from this interaction? Well, the first thing we learn from this interaction is the woman wasn't the one on trial. Jesus was on trial. The woman wasn't the one on trial. Jesus was on trial. As a matter of fact, they brought, they brought him, they brought her in front of him in order for her to be a, a, 
like a, a just a ploy to trick to trick Jesus. So what Jesus had to do is because if he was too soft, then he would be it would be he would be the 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 whole that they would say get away from him. He doesn't know what he's doing. But if he was too harsh, then they would say, "Hey, Rome, this guy's trying to carry out penalties that only you can carry out." So Jesus had to walk the great tension, is what I call it. You know, one of the things that we do, guys, is this. One of the things, we have a difficult time. We have a difficult time as believers standing in what I call the great tension. The great tension is the tension between judgment and grace. All right? We have a hard time standing in that tension. As a matter of fact, as a believer, as a believer, your goal should be to walk in what I call that great tension. We have a hard time with that. And the people that brought this woman to Jesus had a hard time with that. Thankfully, Jesus did not have a hard time with that. And it's one of the things that frustrated the religious people to no end. That Jesus, being the Son of God, being sinless in the Son of God, he had no problem walking in what I call the great tension. The great tension is that, is that area between law and grace. It's between harsh and soft. The great tension is between empathy and wrath. And we have a hard time walking in that. But Jesus does not have a hard time walking in that. Jesus was the one on trial. Can I tell you something? I don't know about you guys, but I feel like Jesus is still on trial today. I do. I feel like Jesus is still on trial today. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago that, that the society continues to try to form Jesus into who they think he should be. We went through a list of seven different things that people formed Jesus into, from ATM Jesus to Republican Jesus to liberal Jesus to, to ATM Jesus again to, you know, and from, from, I mean, you go down the list and Sergeant Jesus, where Jesus is some kind of militant that's got a machine gun and wants to, you know, take, go to war and all these kind of things. But I think he's still on trial today. How do I know that? Well, I've seen him doubted. I've seen him mocked. Um, I've seen him used for people's own agenda. I've seen that occur. And he still has people claiming that he wasn't who he was, even though the history books are recorded full of evidence that says he was who he was. Jesus is still on trial today. And in this setting... I want you to know that the woman wasn't on trial. Jesus was on trial. So the woman's been caught in adultery. She's brought out. They say this. They say, hey, listen, what say you? The law says this. What say you? And then Jesus says something kind of weird. Jesus does weird stuff sometimes, doesn't he? He does. He does something kind of weird. And if my knee was better, I would do something weird right now and kneel down here and write on the ground. But I can't because my knee's killing me. Because I forgot to take medicine this morning and my wife's going to kill me. But uh, i sorry, Wendy, sorry. Anyway, but, but G- Jesus does something weird. He actually kneels down 
And he starts writing on the ground. John 8, 6 through 9 says this. It says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote it in the dust and started writing in the dust on, in his, with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. And so he stood up and he said, all, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And I love what it says here. This is so wise. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. And I love this, beginning with the oldest. You know why it began with the oldest? Because they were wise. It was the young people that weren't wise. It was the old ones that were wise. So here's the age-old question. What did Jesus write? Right? Don't you want to know what Jesus wrote? I may, that may be one of the first questions. I ask him, what did you write on the ground? What did you write in the sand? Well, the truth is, is that we really don't know. But I can tell you this. As part of the Jewish tradition, whenever someone was accused of a crime, what would occur as part of the judgment, what would occur is the priest would often kneel down and write the law on the ground that had been broken with the names of the accused as well. And he would often do that in the dust on the temple floor. He would write down and write the law that had been broken. And then he would write the names of those that were being accused on the floor. Some people believe that Jesus, what he wrote, was a reference to Jeremiah 17, 13. And I believe we have that scripture up here. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who turn away from you will be disgraced. They will be buried in the dust uh, of the earth. And, and another version says, their names will be written in the dust of the earth. For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. So why do people believe that this is a reference and that, that he wrote? And they would have known this, by the way, that this would have been repetitive over and over and over and over again in their minds. They would know this scripture. And a lot of people think that Jesus knelt down and he began to write out, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who turn away from you will be disgraced. And here's the reason why a lot of people believe that he wrote that down. It's because of the last verse, the fountain of living water, because John, and the reason the scribes put this here is because Jesus had just proclaimed that he is the fountain of living water, the verse in chapter 7. A lot of people believe that this is what, and they would have known it, and their names would have been written down. What he would have told them then is he would have said, listen, religious leaders, the, ones that have, the one that has turned away from God is not this woman who was caught in adultery. It's you. You've turned away. You're the one that's turned away from God. Other people believe this. And I kind of believe this one. I don't know. It just seems like a cooler thing to do for Jesus, right? I believe that he wrote the sins of those standing around and looking. That's what I believe. I believe that Jesus, can you imagine bringing them all their, in the, all their holy garb, bringing this woman and, and putting, putting her down in, in front of him and saying, hey, listen. Uh, and by the way, the scripture says she was caught in the act of adultery. Um, chances are she was either nude or almost nude. 
Let me just say that. She was caught in the act. All right? So can you imagine them doing that and having stones in their hand? They had stones in their hand. And can you imagine them standing there with stones in their hand, ready to judge, ready to pounce, ready to condemn, ready to throw those stones? And Jesus, having walked in the great tension, kneels down and writes the word lust, greed, envy, stealing, lying. And then he stands up because they won't listen to him and he says, whoever was without sin cast the first stone. And he looks around at him. Can you imagine that scene? Let me tell you why he said cast the first stone. There's a reason for it. In Deuteronomy 13, 9, here's what it says. It says, you must put them to death. Strike the first, here it is. Strike the first blow yourself. And then all the people must join in. In their day, whoever made the accusation had to be the first person to throw the first stone. Again, in Deuteronomy 17, 7, it says the witness must throw the first stones and then all the people may join in. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. The accuser has to start the process. And so Jesus looks at these accusers. In my opinion, having either written, you know, Jeremiah 17, 13, or having literally written the sins of those people. And he says, anyone who is without sin, cast the first stone. Do what you're going to do. And all of a sudden, the oldest man there dropped his stone. And one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another dropped. And suddenly... The woman whose head was down. Jesus gets her attention and says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she looks around and she says, no, Lord. No. And he looks at her and says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Man, a lot of us love that first part of, of verse 11, don't we? No, Lord. No, no one, no one did. And then Jesus comes in and says, neither do I. Neither do I. I don't condemn you either. And then people stop the story there. But there's more to the story. Because he says, now go. And sin no more. What does that teach you about God and about us? Here's what it teaches me. That forgiveness comes with a spiritual and a moral obligation. Forgiveness comes with a spiritual and a moral obligation. I will tell you this, that the world today has forgotten the last verse. They've forgotten that last part of the last verse. What we want is, is we want forgiveness and grace. 
but we forget that there's a spiritual and a moral obligation to that. Let me explain to you something. If you're married, let's say a woman, a woman and man are married and the man cheats on his wife and the wife forgives him, okay? The wife forgives him. From that moment, from that moment of forgiveness, from that moment, at that very time, the man who has cheated from that point has a spiritual and a moral obligation. A spiritual and a moral obligation. The spiritual is to repent and to turn away from sin and to restore the relationship with his wife. The moral is to not cheat anymore. Are you with me? Everyone wants to receive the free grace that is given, but few want to take the responsibility of that free grace. Yes, grace is free. It's a gift freely given to us. What most of the people today want to do is, is they want to experience the goodness and the grace of God and continue sinning the same way they always have. And that's just not how the economy of God works. It doesn't. You know how I know it doesn't? Because if you were married to someone and that person cheated on you and had an adulterous affair and you forgave them and you looked at them and said, I forgive you, never do it again. And they went and did it again and again and again and again and again. At some point, you're going to say, no more. I'm done. I find it ironic that one of the means of divorce that is clearly spelled out in the scriptures is that which breaks relationship is adultery. Isn't that fascinating? It breaks the relationship. The same thing happens, you guys, whenever we are caught in a sin and we don't necessarily have friends around us. If you have friends around you with stones in their hand, you got the wrong friends. All right? But we don't have friends around us with stones. But what we do have is, is we have people that love us enough to tell us the truth. And what we have a choice to do is, is once we are forgiven, once we repent to God, once we make right the relationship again with God. Because remember, all sin is, is anything that separates you from God. That's what sin is. Anything that separates you from God. And so when you have reconnected that relationship, at that moment, I believe God tells you, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. What oftentimes happens is that we accept the forgiveness, but we forget about the go and sin no more. Even worse, a lot of times, so that we won't feel guilty in our society today, we rename 
something or we um, reclassify something that God has classified as sin as not sin. And that's what we do. That's what we do. Well, that's not sin. Well, that this is, oh, that's not a sin. And all God's saying is this, hey, listen, I forgive you. Now go sin, don't, don't sin anymore. Go and sin no more. You have a moral, you have a, literally, you have a moral and a spiritual obligation not to sin anymore. The issue is not the accounting of the sin, by the way. It's not, you guys know I'm not a checklist Christian, all right? I don't think God's up there saying, all right, well, you did this today, you did this today. Oh, you didn't do that. Let's mark that off. I don't do that. As a matter of fact, I let my checklist go a long time ago. I, I just threw it out the window because I told you this. I told you, I told this story before, but um, whenever I first met Wendy, I, I told you how I met Wendy and how I wooed her into this marital bliss that we currently are supposedly enjoying. Um, but anyway, I, I literally, I, I, I told you what I did is, is I went up and said, hey, how are you doing? And she goes, I'm fine. And I checked the list. Okay, good. I got that. Okay. So uh, how was your day? Oh, check, check that. Okay. Wow. So how was, uh, would you like to go to dinner? Okay. I checked that box. All right. And then six months later, I take her flowers. All right. I checked that box. All right. That's not what I did at all, is it? That's not what anybody does. We think that that's the way to God and that's the way that we love God is that we check a bunch of boxes, but that's not what God wants from you at all. He just wants you to be real and to be genuine and to come exactly how you are and to begin a relationship with Him and to grow in the relationship. It's why we call it real church. Just be genuine. If you are, you know, caught in some sin, then come to us, be genuine. Let's talk about it. Let's get you through that and let's get you on the way to a closer relationship with God. As a matter of fact, most people would tell you that that's not a relationship at all if you have it to check a checkbox. I'll tell you it's not because no one wants to do that. No one, Wendy doesn't want flowers if it's because I put it on my calendar. Hey, please get Wendy flowers on this day for this time. She wants me to be in Publix because who in the heck's going to call a florist because they're so expensive. She wants me to be in Publix and I'm going to get me a sub sandwich and I look over and there's these beautiful bouquet of flowers and I say, wow, those flowers so beautiful remind me of my beautiful wife's face. And I go over and I grab the flowers and then I take them down to her work, right? And then she says, why didn't you get me a DSW card instead of flowers? Because these are going to die in two weeks and I could wear shoes for a year. Anyway, true story, guys. That happened to me. It did. Hadn't happened to you. It happened to me. Of course, that's what she wants. She wants, she, she wants me to, to, it to be genuine. She wants it to be heartfelt. She doesn't want it to be a checkbox. And neither does God. Here's the truth of the matter. In this situation and in every situation, it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. It was a hard issue for, the, for these people. It was a hard issue for the lady. And for Jesus, it's a hard issue. And for you and me, it's a hard issue. So if there was anything I want you to know is, is that God is a grace-giving God. Is that luckily we don't have to be the judge but I also want you to know that there's a spiritual and moral obligation to the grace that he gives. I believe that's why the story is put exactly where it is. Because there's some things getting ready to occur that we're going to see that are fascinating. That are fascinating. Some symbolic, fascinating things that Jesus is getting ready to proclaim. Such as, I am the light 
of the world. But that's next week. If I had a thing back there, it would say, to be continued, dot, dot, dot. Right? That's next week. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the simplicity of your word. And thank you for the fact that you are grace given. That you can see through these issues. That you can see through the, the, the people's motivation. God, I'm thankful that you love us enough to come and die for us in our place. Lord, let us take the spiritual and moral obligation that comes with that. Let us take it seriously. And let us join in the path that you've got us on. Let us walk with you, Lord. And Lord, as you begin to change us, we're not going to take credit for it. As you begin to change us from the inside out, we're going to say, no, you know, I know, yeah, it looks like I've changed a lot, but I really, it's, it's all God in me. It's all about my heart. It's all about relationship. Lord, let us be people that take seriously the spiritual and moral obligation and worship you for who you are. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and sing a final worship song. As always, our altars are always open. They're always open. And so if you came in today, look, don't leave the same way you came in. You can, you can release some kind of burden you have. You can leave it at the altar. If you need prayer, there's going to be people. When you come up here, they're going to be praying for you. And they're going to pray around you. I encourage you to come as we sing the final worship song. Let's, let's sing. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Real Church Coweta. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please visit our website at realchurchcoweta.com and click on the Contact Us tab. We invite you to join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sharpsburg. Until then, God bless and remember to love God, love others, and live real.